Welcome to the Visual Artist Spotlight, the podcast where we interview artists from around the world, discovering how the world inspired their art. I'm your host, Miko Hayashi, leader of the Stitch and Bitch Club on Clubhouse and owner of Mimi Hana Threads, a handmade 3D embroidery company that creates beautiful wearable art accessories. Today's guest is Brandon Small, an American photographer based in Kanagawa, which is a prefecture next to Tokyo in Japan. To view examples of his work, visit his profile on Instagram at Small World Photo Video. Brandon, go ahead. Why don't you give a self-introduction? Uh, my name is Brandon, and I am, uh, I guess, a child of the earth, you know. Uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps, so I can't really call any one place my home. Um, I was born in California, and then I lived all over the place in America because he was a Marine, and so I had the military brat lifestyle. And that kind of led me to join the military ultimately myself. Um, so I guess I won't bore you with all of the details of my life, but uh, a few milestones. I went to college at East Carolina University in North Carolina. Um, that's the duty station where my dad ultimately settled down. And from there, um, I ran track on a scholarship and it was a three-year period where I was uh, there, ran the 400, the 200. Um, those were uh, the sprint races that I was involved in. Um, and after my third year, I, you know, I had too much partying, too much not taking school class life seriously. Um, I ended up actually losing my scholarship. And I was kind of at a crossroads where I had to figure out exactly what I wanted to do with my life. So um, I actually started for a little while um, working in retail, uh, retail jobs or working um, construction jobs, just any kind of odd job uh, that I could uh, find the time that didn't bore me. Um, and I quit pretty much everything that I was involved with. Um, I, and nothing, nothing really stuck, nothing really connected with me or resonated with me. And so I was kind of in the door for a couple of months and then out the door after I got my first or second paycheck. That was kind of the life that I lived. And it got to a point where I, you know, I really started asking myself, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, is this what it's going to be like? Am I going to be that guy that, you know, grew up in a town, you know, unsuccessfully completed college, uh, didn't successfully complete college and then just went back home to like live with his parents and, you know, work, work a retail job. Um, and you know, I, I didn't want that for myself. So that's whenever I came to the decision to join the military. Um, and really it just kind of started off as a way to, um, continue pursuing my academics, I guess, on my own time, um, at my own pace, uh, because I've, you know, I've struggled with ADHD my entire life and it's kind of one of the hallmark traits that defines, um, me and the way that I am, how I do things, how I interact with people, how I interact with the world, um, how I view life, employment, satisfaction, happiness, all of that stuff. So, um, you know, I, I joined the military uh, because I just didn't want to do that day-to-day -day grind uh, thing. I, I don't like to live conventionally. And I think that that's kind of a part of what, um, you know, put me there. It's a comfortable place to kind of collect yourself and to figure out how to get back on track. Um, so I did that for nine years 
And somewhere in the middle of there, actually, I had an opportunity to um, come to Japan. And I guess, you know, like if we're going to get into that later, I don't want to go too much into that, like right this second. But um, yeah, I, I um, you know, I was born, I moved around a lot. I came to Japan. And that's why we're here now uh, having this chat about my photography. So I'll let Miko lead the discussion um, to make sure that I don't answer questions before asked. Growing up, did you have a lot of creative experiences or um, what was your first creative experience? Yes. As a matter of fact, always, you know, even as a kid, um, I was just always using my imagination um, in everything that I did from the games that I played. And I know that kids in general, like they use their imagination for things. But like I was quite over the top um, with how I applied my imagination to just everyday play and you know you know i like i was and i liked whenever i was a kid i also liked to lie a lot and i know that liars get a bad rap um, because you know you shouldn't lie lying is bad but one of the things that i've um, read in a lot of research that i've done in a lot of psych, uh, psychology courses that i've taken is that actually lying is a hallmark trait of creative individuals um, and a lot of kids who lie are actually um, displaying tendencies towards more creative inclinations. And so if you look at it from that way, you know, not all lying is bad. But I was just very inventive with my lies when I was a kid. Um, I was, you know, I was, I was always trying to be persuasive. I was always thinking about things from, you know, other perspectives and... I remember as a kid, um, one of the things that I was heavily involved with was um, uh, fiction writing. I was I was writing a lot of fiction, um, short stories and different pieces like that as a kid. I won lots of different awards and like poetry and short stories and essays um, whenever I was younger. Um, I was always just really good at writing and then I, I just felt really creative. I had all these stories that I would um, draft on my my dad's old um, Macintosh computer uh, back before they called them just Apple. They were called Macintosh. Um, I don't even know if anybody will these days. I don't know if the young generation even knows that Mac stood for Macintosh. Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> we might be the same age. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, like... I, I generated a lot of stuff like that. And like, I, there was like so many times in my past where I can just remember being and feeling super creative, but for some reason, you know, and it's inexplicable life, you know, kind of just happened. I guess I'll just say that life just happened. And I just remember the day that I woke up. I didn't, I mean, it, it wasn't like a day that I woke up and had some epiphany, but you know, like I was going through my day and I think I was just like trying to do something. Maybe I was trying to write something and like the words didn't come and it wasn't like it wasn't like um, a temporary writer block it kind of felt like a permanent writer's block that i had where like you know the valve of my creativity was just shut off and i felt like i couldn't be creative um i tried to write things i would read them they would suck um and, you know to me you know subjectively they would suck um and i would constantly think and compare work that I did in the past. Um, and it might even be linked to, you know, this past moment where I had a body of work that I had, you know, considered just kind of like putting together and like trying to showcase in some way. 
and my dad's computer dying. And I basically like lost the culmination of like all the pieces that I was like the proudest of when I was younger. Um, and, and in that moment, when that happened, I felt like I could never reproduce, like I could never replicate that work again. Like I, I found myself trying to like redo the stories that I wrote and like falling short and over a period of time, just feeling, you know, extremely discouraged and feeling like, you know, I'll never get back to that place. And that kind of followed me for a while. Um, and it followed me really up until the point that I picked up photography. I guess I would like to know more about your ADHD. Um, did you get formally diagnosed for that? Or did you just come to that conclusion? Did. You did, okay. No, I, I, so I did. I actually was formally diagnosed with ADHD when I was seven, um, but I went unmedicated. And so when I was diagnosed, it was during a period of time where like everybody knew what Ritalin was. Like there were kids that were either on Ritalin or they, they were, they were normal. They were normal or they were on Ritalin. That was, ba there was like no in between. And they were like over diagnosing and popping out, pa passing out pills like candy mm -hmm. uh, because every boy in school was ADHD basically. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I remember taking an IQ test they gave me an IQ test and um, they gave me like a reading comprehension test and, you know, a math test and like some logic tests. And I just remember the doctor coming back, you know, into the room and like telling my parents, like, you know, your son is gifted. He's, you know, he's extremely intelligent. His reading level is like, you know, on a collegiate level or something weird like that, like um, that he had said. And he was just like, you know, like he seems like really bored and disconnected in school. And they basically asked my parents if they felt like I should be on medication. And my parents basically deferred to me. So the doctor came to me and he basically asked, you know, like, what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you see yourself as? And like, I don't know why, maybe I had just watched Top Gun or something, but I said that I wanted to be a pilot in the Navy. I don't know why I said that. But after I said that, the doctor told my parents that I could not be medicated if that was a career goal of mine, because pilots in the military cannot be on prescription medication for neurological or mental um, conditions. And he said that, you know, through therapy, I could learn to manage it. So it was basically up to my parents whether or not I got put on medication. And they ultimately decided not to put me on medication. So I struggled through all of my years in academia um, because I could not manage my ADHD um, in the school environment at all. Did they teach you any techniques to help I mean, that you still use in adulthood that help you? Um, honestly, I can't remember if they did. Um, there are certain things that I do remember that they did. Like, you know, I, I never I, I, I had the um, the very um, hyperactive um, personality when I was a kid where like I couldn't sit down. I was always tapping my feet. I was always you know, tapping on my desk. I was always standing up, sitting down. I was walking around when I was reading. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't sit still. And so one of the things that they did is they had me put like this blue cardboard thing on top of my desk and I would stand instead of sit. 
So like every single kid in the classroom was sitting down during a lesson and I was standing up. Um, and they, I guess, I guess like the, the, the process, the thought process behind that was that like, it's, it's like a different form of, of neural stimulation, the color and the act of standing that like calms me down and allows me to focus or something. I'm not sure. Um, but that's kind of the only thing that I remember from the past them having me do, but they also said that I should, you know, um, stand whenever I'm studying at home. Um, because if I sit down, just the simple act of fidgeting, um, takes away from my attention to any subject that I'm trying to focus on. Then I guess next I would want to ask you, um, so we'll, we'll come, we'll kind of come back to this later, but, um, I'm going to try to connect the dots here. Tell me about your assignment to Japan. Like, how did that, how did that make you feel at first? Did you want to go or was it something you were not really looking forward to? Yeah. So, um, I guess to talk on that, I'd have to take it back maybe a few years before. And so when I was 17, I got kicked out of my house. And, you know, you know, in standard American fashion, you know, there comes this battle of the wills between, you know, an alpha father and an alpha child. Um, it happens in so many homes um, in America where it's basically like, if you don't want to live by my rules and get out. And that was kind of a moment that I came to, um, you know, living at home in, in, in my place. So. At 17, I got kicked out of the house and I experienced, you know, living not really independently, but on my own for the first time and pretty much ever since. Um, so I was living with friends. I was crashing on couches. And then I ultimately ended up in a stable situation with a friend that I was in school with. Um, and we worked at the same the same um, job. We worked at Chick-fil-A. After that, I went to college. I was on my own. Um, you know, when I lost my scholarship, I didn't exactly come back home. I was actually living with friends, but just in my hometown. And then I went to go live with my brother, a state away in Virginia. Um, so I joined the military and I was still, you know, more independent, not really connected with my family, um, but used to being on my own to an extent, but always having kind of like a safety net um, to fall back on. And so after I joined the Navy um, and I had my first assignment in Bethesda, uh, Maryland, it was a very short assignment because the typical pace that you're supposed to go on is, you know, you join, you go to A school and then you go to sea duty. You're supposed to go to your first ship and, you know, do that ship life for three to four years. And then you go to a shore command. But my career path kind of turned in reverse for some reason, where I started at a shore command and because I started at a shore command, my tour was actually shorter. So that tour was actually only two and a half years. And because it was so short, I had to hurry up and pick sea duty. But instead of going to a ship, I selected squadrons, which are technically um, sea duty because they go on deployments. But not every squadron goes on deployments with an aircraft carrier. Unfortunately though, I found that the squadron that I selected did go on deployments with an aircraft carrier. So I kind of shot myself in the foot with that one. But um, at that two year mark, when it was time for me to pick my orders, I selected these orders. 
Um, and you basically get five choices. So I was always a fan of the West Coast. I heard that the West Coast was just, you know, more chill, more relaxed um, from a military perspective. So like I'd put San Diego, San Diego, San Diego, <laughs> um, San Diego on my wish list. I chose it like for three different places. And then I think I chose Virginia Beach for one place because my brother was in that area. And I put Japan as my last choice. And I didn't think that they were going to give me Japan. I just put it because I wanted to say that, like, I had, you know, selected a variety of locations. And I guess the Navy didn't really care too much about what I wanted because they were just like, oh, he put Japan. And, like, they basically just pretended like they couldn't see the other things I selected. And they gave me my fifth choice, Japan. And I was freaking (laughs) out. I and, And honestly, I don't even know why I was freaking out about it. Um you know, when I grew up as a kid, I remember, you know, like turning on my TV and watching Toonami on the weekends and, you know, watching Dragon Ball Z and all the other anime and stuff. And like, I was kind of fascinated by Japanese animation. Like I wasn't like such a fanatic based on anime that I was willing to like uproot my life and come to Japan. I was not like that. So when I found out that I was coming to Japan, like, I think that fear was really the only thing that set in. Um, and I think the main reason why I was um, hesitant, resistant, this was literally the week after the great earthquake and tsunami, um, a Fukushima reactor uh, disaster that took place in 2011. So I had like all of these like mental images in my mind of like three headed fish and like going there and getting cancer and like all this other nonsense. And I was just like, I don't want to go like, you know. I could be a fan of sushi, but like, how can I even eat sushi if I go there? It's nuclear wastewater. I had all these dumb ideas in my head. And so like, I just didn't want to go. Um, And, you know, you know, fast forward to October when I was finally kind of like, all right, this is actually happening. And I basically packed all my life into nine suitcases. And like, that's how I moved to Japan with nine suitcases. Um, So... So yeah, so so I'm 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 you know I'm on this passenger jet you know that that um, transports military personnel, but um, we get ready and we're get gearing up to board this you know this plane and I'm thinking you know like I hope that they don't lose my nine bags that I brought like because it was obnoxious trying to carry those things like everywhere that I was going I don't know why I packed nine suitcases, but we get there. Um, we take off and it was just like the longest flight of my life. But I just remember sitting back in my chair and thinking to myself, like, this flight is so long. I don't think I'm going to go home and visit my family the entire time I'm here. I do not want to go on that flight again. Like it was that long. And, you know, we, we, we touched down and like, I, I just have all of these like feelings in my gut, like, oh, this is such a mistake. Like, what am I doing in this foreign country? I never wanted to leave America. Like I had never even been out of the country at that point. And I'm just like, I don't know, I'm like, it's like a mixture of like freaking out, denial, you know, anger, frustration, um, you know, leaving the only home I ever knew. But like we, I remember getting off the plane and like, you know, stepping down with my, you know, stepping down um, the ladder, you know, placing my feet on the ground and like everything was like foreign to me. Like it was just so alien. I wasn't used to anything. I wasn't I wasn't used to the idea of being there. I wasn't used to, you know, seeing things that I couldn't understand. But we take the bus and it's a long it's a pretty 
not not long, but moderate bus ride from Yakota Air Base to Atsugi. And I go through the gate and, you know, like they take me to the barracks where we're going to be living and like we get everything checked in. And like I place my bags down into like this dormitory style room and I'm laying down on the bed and I'm just like, like, can't believe this is happening. I'm kind of emotional. I don't have Internet yet. Like I don't have a cell phone yet. And, you know, I don't have any cash. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. Um and I'm, I'm just kind of like mentally, like everything is just negative. And then like, I just sit back for a minute and I'm just like, you know, like you're, you're being ridiculous right now. Like you have to make a decision um, in that moment. And that decision is you can either sit here and wallow in despair and be depressed and hate everything that's happening, or you can try to commit yourself to, you know, at least trying to enjoy it. And so after I decided to like it and enjoy my experience, um, you know, I wanted to do something to kind of like mark the moment. So I stepped off base and I kind of walked around, didn't want to go too far because I, could, I couldn't read anything. Um, but I actually ended up stumbling upon what has become uh, my favorite uh, Yakiniku restaurant that's not too far from the front gate of Atsugi Base. And it was my first meal in Japan as well. So it was probably like the best first meal that I could have ever had. Um, because like at the, after that moment, I was just like, you know, I think I'm really going to love this place. And I did. I, 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 it went from, you know, like this, this cringe fear slash aversion to, you know, the unknown to, you know, becoming the place that I can't see myself not living in. That's pretty re amazing that I, I, cause I always feel that if you come to Japan more often it's kind of by choice. I mean, I hear the stories where there are some um, expats who are, I mean, usually it's the wife and she's married to the husband who moves around all around the world and they happen to end up in Japan. And um, then in that case, it's not really her choice. But your story is um, something I haven't really heard before from the military perspective. And they, they just kind of just said, well, okay, and then they just plopped you down there. And <laughs> but I mean, tell me how um, and tell me about um, your uh, how you met your wife. Is this uh, after your two and a half year tour or was this before or how did this happen? I met my wife in Japan, actually. So um, um, after arriving in Japan, you know, like I I was struck hard uh, by the yellow fever, <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, <no. laughs> super hard. And you know, I, I feel like I feel like every you know service member that comes here goes through the same thing. Um, but like, I got to a point where I was just like, I was really tired of you know doing things the way that I was doing them. Like, I just I I felt like I was you know, I felt like I was like reducing myself to nothing um, mentally, spiritually. Um, and, and so I decided, you know, one day, like, I just wanted to settle down. Like, I just wanted to stop, um, you know, being so wild, stop running the streets and just, you know, like focus on, you know, one authentic relationship if I found one. Um, and I wasn't really looking for one at the time, but um, I think I had, like, there was like a period, a period of time where I was like sending out 
messages on Facebook to, you know, like, you know, random women um, just seeing who wanted to meet up, who wanted to hang out. Like this is before Tinder, I guess, came on the scene. You know, you had to be a little bit more inventive with trying to connect with people online. And I was too bougie for dating apps. So, um, you know, Facebook was what I used. And I had like this standard greeting message that I had kind of created where I would, you know, drop it into as many inboxes as I could to see, you know, who, who would bite, I guess. Um, and I remember sending a message and, you know, I, I saw, so I saw my wife, my, my, my now wife, her profile had popped up randomly whenever Facebook introduced that feature, people you may know. And I know I didn't know who she was, but I was like, oh, thanks, Facebook. So I sent, <laughs> I dropped the message and she didn't even respond. I, 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 dropped, I dropped that line, forgot about it. And then three months later, I got a message in my inbox and it was kind of just like, hey, I saw that you had sent me um, a message. Uh, sorry, I didn't respond. I didn't see it or whatever. I remember feeling uh, a little creative um, at that point. So I came up with my initial lie to see if I could uh, link up with her. And I was just like, you know, um, Christmas is around the corner. And um, she had worked at this clothing store at that point. And so I was like, um, I'm looking for some stuff to get for my sister for Christmas. And I was wondering if you had any recommendations. I noticed that you worked in a shopping mall. And so I, I didn't really think that it was likely that we would meet up like at all. Like I, I had this like vision in my head of her like stringing me along so that she could improve her English or something like I didn't know. Um, but she was just like, oh, yeah, you know, um, I'd love to help you pick out something for your sister. And so I, I remember being super shocked and um, I felt bad that I had like lied to her to like kind of finagle my way into her life somehow. Um, and I told her ultimately, but like. Um, we had like set up, you know, this day where she was going to be working. I was going to come there and like, you know, pretend to look for some stuff, uh, for my sister that I didn't end up buying at all. Um, but yeah, we met up, we talked we started, you know, um, getting a little bit more, uh, serious about each other, um, as time progressed. And I remember this day that I introduced her to the one friend that I let, uh, live in my house and he was there with his girlfriend. And like after he saw her, I think that like she had like gone to the bathroom or something like that. And he was like, yo, bro, you need to cuff that. <laughs> and I was just like laughing, like, <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? But like I thought about it and I was just like, you know, like I've been living life like the same way for quite some time. And I kind of made a decision like in that moment, like I'm just going to try to, you know, do the honest thing, you know, for the first time and like not play around with the girl's emotions and like just see where it goes. And if it leads to anything, then cool. And if it doesn't, then at least I can say I tried and I can go back to being a douchebag. And it just ended up working out like from the day that I made that decision until the day that we got married, it just ended up working out perfectly. The, so I guess that's kind of a, um, I don't know, did you feel like you became more mature at that point or were you it's just like a sudden decision in your head that you're just i don't know what, is it a combination or um it, it it's it's a decision honestly like it, and it's and it's part of my adhd to be honest like i have no impulse control so like 
if I make a spur of the moment decision to do something, I'm like all in like 100%. Um, it, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, what happened with my photography this year where like all my friends are like still in disbelief at how hard I've been going with photography since January, because like I literally went from doing like nothing last year to booking shoots pretty much three times a week, mm -hmm. every week since January. So then I guess I'm going to tie that your, um, your experiences in Japan with your photography and also your, um, ADHD. So you mentioned earlier that, um, that you, you couldn't stop you couldn't do anything if you're sitting down. Like you, it's really hard for you to sit down in one place. And often when, so then, then Japan also offers two things for you. And what I'm thinking is that there's a lot going on in Tokyo. There's just so much stimulus, especially at nighttime. And does that, and then also when you're taking photos, you're also standing, right? So how does that, um, how do, does your ADHD, do you think, help you in that way? How does that help you create a, a composition for a photograph? Yeah, I, I definitely think that ADHD helps me with my photography. Um, you know, I, I do get bored when I'm not doing um, something different. And when, I, when I'm falling into like a routine, I can't do routines. I can't do patterns. Like I just can't. So when... When I'm doing photography and the way that I approach photography, like I always look at it as something new. It's a new opportunity to create something different, to shoot at a different angle, to shoot in different lighting conditions or, you know, um, to shoot with different shadows, to play with different shapes. Um, the sky is never the same. Um, I mean, unless it's blue, the sky is never the same. Um, so you're always going to get a different result and you're always going to you know, play around with your camera settings in a different way, you know, each time until you figure out the things that work specifically for you. And so from that perspective, there's no monotony in it for me. It's always changing. So that really keeps your stimulus still going. And how also notice that when you do take photography, you kind of, even if you didn't really grow up with it, like some people do, you still have this um, capacity to create a composition because, you know, it, you can give anybody a really good camera, but it's up to that person to know how to take the picture and make a good, good portrait or a good scene, you know, and, and, and know how the lighting works. Right. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you're, um, if you're ADHD, since you're always tuned into the different stimuluses and you, and you tend to hone in on something, does that also help you create your composition as well? Honestly, I don't know if it's ADHD that, that makes my compositions. I can tell you that I have honestly no idea, you know, how my mind works when it comes to framing a shot. Um, I, I always describe myself as like one of the laziest photographers you'll ever meet. From the perspective of I don't study art, I don't study photography, um, I just go out and I experiment. That's how I look at photography is constant experimentation. Um, the day I go out and I try something that doesn't work, I go out another day and I try to fine tune that until I figure out what does work. Um, the day that I have to like stick my face in a book to improve is the day that I probably will stop enjoying photography as much. Uh, I don't know, like I know that every, every photographer is different and everybody approaches photography a different way. 
I just can't be that meticulous or methodical about it. Um, I just like to go out and kind of just like flow and see what happens. And, you know, some days I feel like I'm making art and other days I feel like I'm just, you know, spraying and praying. Um, <laughs> it's never the same. Yeah. You also know I used to do a lot more photography and a lot of photography is half of it is chance, right? And then the other half is actually, you know, modeling, you know, or, you know, f having a picture in your head of how you want it to look like. Of course, it's never going to look exactly like that. But um, so then I guess for you, is, is candid uh, as a candid photo better than a staged photo? Most definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I guess the answer to that is subjective. But for me personally, yeah, I, I prefer to capture a candid moment. Um one, because I don't really know how to pose models in general. Like I do a lot of micro posing, you know, like tilt your head this way. Um, but like, as far as like directing an entire body movement, it's just like, it's so awkward to me. Like, I don't know how to do that. I, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. So I honestly, I rely on a lot more talented models to hit those poses that they know they can do. And then just, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that I'm running a fast enough shutter speed to stop the motion and to capture um, the poses at the right time. A lot of models are more intuitive and they wait for shutter clicks before they um, adjust their poses. Um, but I have actually noticed with the Fujifilm um, camera bodies that the shutters are super quiet. So sometimes mm -hmm. the models can't even hear whenever I snap. So they just end up kind of going from pose to pose and then I capture the ones that are either the most interesting or I hope to snap at the right moment. Right. You have a Fuji camera that right like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And would so would that scenario work better in the daytime where it's bright or the golden hour when the sun is setting or nighttime? Yeah, I I like daytime to to golden hour. Um I just like shooting with light. Mm -hmm. um, however, I do feel I grow the most at night because I'm not good at taking photos at mm -hmm. night. So the most important thing that I found whenever it comes to shooting at night is understanding, you know, light mm -hmm. and being able to find adequate light because not every light is going to illuminate the face enough that you're going to get a proper exposure at low ISO. And not every piece of light that you find is actually going to be flattering to the skin tone of the person that you're shooting as well. Right. So, you know, there's things that you have to think about whenever you're shooting at night. And I've kind of just been trying to train my eye to find good soft light that's, you know, not too harsh, that you can still properly compose a shot. And even if you don't, you know, you can't, you know, you, if even if, if, if it's too underexposed or slightly overexposed when you tone it down, that it still looks good, you know, whenever you create your finished product. Um, because the less you have to work with a picture, the less you have to tweak or finagle a picture, the better. Mm -hmm. So um, have you visited the States in between when you first picked up photography and um, now? Or was there no chance to go back yet? Um, so I, I did go to the States. So... I was so when I was in the military, I was in Japan for four years and I went back to the States in 2014. And um, 
so I didn't really do photography like seriously the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went back to the States, I met a guy that I was working with at the Pentagon who was into photography and he also shot on Nikon. Um, I remember asking him what kind of projects was he working on? And he said that he was going out for some sunrise photography mm-hmm. uh, one time. I thought about doing some sunrise shots because I know that like I can't shoot while I'm at work. And I don't feel like shooting after work. So maybe if I got up early one day, you know, like who knows. So it started turning into these trips that I would take with my friend before work most mornings where we would go out and we would sit across the Potomac and we would shoot the monuments, you know, under the fire pink sky in the morning. And I would try to practice different exposure settings. And there was one day where we decided to do sunset um, finally and I had taken this shot. Uh, we were shooting at uh, Great Falls in Virginia. And there, so there's uh, the Great Falls Park. It's, uh, it's um, connected to the Virginia side and the Maryland mm-hmm. side. And so you see different scenes on whichever side that you're on. And so we were on the Virginia side. And it was like this day that there was going to be a storm. The wind was kind of whipping. And there was a guy that I guess had like somehow fallen into the river and was like caught in the current. And I had heard like some radio about it. Like there was like this whole news thing about it. And while we were out there shooting, like they had like cordoned off these areas because they were worried about the water. But we were already down there. And this um, Montgomery County Fire Department um, rubber boat was like you know, motoring through, um, you know, and it came into the frame of the shot. Um, as I was, I was doing, you know, like one fifth exposure shots for the water, just to kind of give it like this kind of wispy paint vibe, painting vibe. And the ship, like it, it just kind of like hung there in the frame for like 20 seconds. So I just remember like snapping like mm. five or six shots, like frantically, like hoping I could catch it. And I was really expecting to get a lot of motion, but um, the, uh, the picture, I, 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 mm-hmm. I think I pushed it up on my Instagram a couple of days ago, um, but the picture came through and like the boat is almost stationary and then you can see the motion in the waves and it became like one of my favorite photos that I've ever taken. And that's kind of like really where that love of photography kind of started up. But that love of photography always was at war with my ADHD, um, you know, because ADHD enhances certain things whenever you're doing photography. But it, it, there's also other traits that you carry with you when you have mm-hmm. it, you know, where like it's hard to commit to certain things. And so I fall in and out of love with photography, not because I don't like to be creative or not because I don't like to shoot, but because I just can't be consistent. Um, I get tired after a while. I get into these ruts and I, I just I just walk away. Um, and that's kind of where I was at uh, back mm. in 2017, where I kind of put down my camera. Um, and I didn't really pick it back up seriously until mid-year 2020, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but it wasn't really like a hardcore, like, okay, you're like I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to do this thing. That didn't really come until January of this year. I see. Wow. I was guess what I was wondering is that since you did have the chance to visit while you picked up photography in the States, I was wondering what the 
difference of stimulus was for you in the states yeah versus in tokyo right because I, I i yeah it's because it's kind of more mellow <laughs> you right so yeah. how did that affect you yeah in the states it's in the states it's uh, for me at least in the states it's harder to shoot because you know you've, you've got to be intentional as a photographer anyways like you've got to have a purpose and like at that point i wasn't looking to go out and do portraits or anything like that like I still didn't even know what kind of photography I wanted to do. You know, whenever it started pulling me into like the more technical aspects of photography, I didn't really enjoy it as much. Um, I just wanted to like take my camera out and get a shot. Um, But, you know, in those times, you know, in my photography, I was really learning that there's certain things that you, you just have to do um, if you want to improve. And and there's certain sacrifices that you have to make um, to grow. Um, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to invest in accessories and different equipment pieces. Um, but it also depends on, you know, like what kind of photography that you want to do. Like you're not forced to do certain things, but if you find something that you gravitate towards, you have to have the equipment to support that Mm -hmm. kind of photography. I'll ask one more question. Uh, the last one, I guess, is since recently, so really recently that you're deciding to take photography very seriously, are you going to be entrepreneurial with your photography or, t- or you can even talk about more about your, f- your photo walks that you're also conducting as well? Like, you know, it, what do you see yourself doing in the future? I definitely want to be more entrepreneurial about it. Um, and, I, and I'm also coming to kind of like a, a defining moment with, um, with it as well, as far as how I want to monetize. I, I know a lot of uh, photographers that work towards, um, Doing, you know, hourly uh, commission jobs where they, you know, like they'll get hired by the hour and they'll snap portraits and they'll edit and then they'll pass portraits. I and I know that it's possible to do that kind of work. I just find it extremely difficult. Um, And and I think that, you know, like a, a part of it is just like my mentality and the way that my brain works and, you know, like my anxieties and my ADHD where you know, like the first thing that I tell myself is like, who would want to spend money to have their, their photo taken when they could just stick their phone on a selfie stick and snap a picture of themselves. Like I, I I tell myself that (laughs) all the time. And so the practical, the practical me is just like, there's no way I'm going to be able to convince somebody to like, give me a hundred dollars, $200 an hour to take their photos. So I'm trying to look at a different way to monetize that makes me feel comfortable um, and that I know that I could pull off. And that's kind of where the photo walks are tying in, because ultimately mm. I want to monetize the photo walk. Japan is going to open up again eventually. Yeah. And I'd like to be able to, you know, have a place where foreign tourists can come and, you know, have their trips um, or their city tours documented by professional photographers, um, and have memories that they can bring back Mm. home with them. Um, and I think that I could accomplish that in a way that doesn't, you know, cost them too much money because they are concerned about how much they're spending when they come here. And, you know, they don't want to spend too, too much for entertainment. You know, who's to say that we don't get, you know, 10 or 12 photographers that show up and they, they just want to know, where are the best spots in a particular, you know, neighborhood to take, you know, photos. Um, so having a workshop to, you know, lead people to some of these locations, um, you know, 
seeing the light where it's at and like knowing where you need to be to get a, a particular shot and then, you know, serving that to customers um, who come and do workshops um, on some of the photo walks and tours. Those are all things that I'm kind of trying to tie into this. Mm. Yeah, it sounds really like actually a good idea because, you know, what you were saying about the Selfie 6 when they first came out, I think that was like 2016 or so. And that's when I did start my um, photography um, tour or I I would take the photos of my clients because um, I was actually really upset at selfie sticks myself but um, but you actually showing them where to take the photos I think that's really smart um, do you actually just point out of like this is a great you know I see this is going to be a really awesome composition or do you just take them to the location where they're I just I just take them to a location where I know that the light touches well. Mm -hmm. um, at nighttime, I've gotten really good at finding um, various um, light sources that are excellent for shots that you don't necessarily see on Instagram. Um, and I've been kind of just dropping pins on my map so that whenever I do go back to those places, I can show people, you know, a lot of those different things. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping a lot of that stuff and thinking about how to, um, you know, present that in kind of like a bundle or package, um, in the future. And, and I think that that will be a good opportunity to, you know, show somebody a, pers a different perspective. Um, sometimes I'll have people, you know, like over my shoulder when I do the shots or, you know, I'm even over people's shoulders when I do the shots because I really don't even to this day, I don't consider myself to be professional, like by any means. Um, I think until really I buckle down and commit to learning Photoshop, I will never consider myself to be a professional photographer <laughs> because it's, I, I've been so resistant to Photoshop. Like, mm. I, honestly, I don't even want to learn Photoshop, but I know that I'll have to learn it eventually. Yeah, that one will have to take more time, but you'll probably be okay with Lightroom for the time being anyway. <laughs> yeah. Brandon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciated this interview. Um, it was, I, I think it was a really awesome interview personally. Um, Brandon, again, one more time, thank you so much. My pleasure, my pleasure. That was Brandon Small, a photographer based in Kanagawa, a free picture close to Tokyo. If you're interested at looking at his art, please check out his Instagram at smallworldphotovideo. If you like listening to the previous three recordings that I've done and these interviews that I've done with these artists, uh, I would really appreciate some support. I do spend my time doing this uh, on my own. I don't have a team behind me, but if you feel like you like what you're hearing and would like to hear more, please head over to my PayPal account at www.paypal.me slash Mimihana Threads. That's M-I-M-I-H-A-N-A-T-H-R-E-A-D-S. Any support that you can give would be amazing and I really appreciate it. Next time on the Visual Artist Spotlight. There were some things that I went through just, you know, being um, African-American, 
um, in this country and just um, some of the experiences that I've had growing up. My father was battling um, a drug addiction. That was really hard for me to deal with. Sometimes I would just draw. I would draw all day, draw all night. I would, and it just helped me to get through so much um, trauma. Just all situations in life, I feel like one thing that I could always return to was my pencil. That's next on the Visual Artist Spotlight.